And now from the Institute of Politics at the University of Chicago and CNN Audio, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. I sat down last week with Congressman Pete Aguilar of California, the chairman of the Democratic House Caucus, and as such, the highest-ranking Hispanic member of the U.S. House. We talked about his own story, which is quite a great American story, and about the gridlock that has enveloped Congress as crises mount over the budget, over the border, and over funding for Ukraine and Israel. We recorded this conversation in front of a live audience at the Cronkite School of Journalism and Mass Communications at Arizona State University. Pete Aguilar, it's great to see you here at Arizona State. Um, Here, not just for this conversation, but to see your beloved Dodgers. So welcome to spring training. Absolutely, yes. I'll be at Camelback Ranch. Tell me about baseball just for a second. This baseball was important to you when you were growing up. Re- really important to me growing up. Um, I've always been a Dodger fan, but I, I do have to admit that coming home from school, uh, Catholic school as, as a kid, I would turn on the TV and everybody was a Braves fan or a Cubs fan too. Yes, those were on. That's TV. good. Good to hear. Those were also on on TV. Um, but my parents were not into sports, but my brother and I were, and they didn't know what to do with us, and so they just kept putting us in uh, sports, and we just we loved baseball. And so my brother and I played a lot of baseball growing up. And you, I read somewhere you said you, you, your parents split up when you were in high school, and 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 you said sports kind of got you through. Yeah, I think that's I think that's really fair to say. The uh, you know my parents uh, separated and then and then divorced uh, when I was in high school. My brother played a, a huge role in my life. My parents were both you know a, around, but that's a, it's a tough time mm-hmm. uh, in a household. And uh, I played football and baseball, and um, you know the 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 idea of of going from school into sports, being able to kind of lose myself you know in that for a few hours. Uh, really meant a lot. And then I got cut from my high school baseball team. So then I learned how to play golf. Uh, so I still was out of, out of the house. I had, uh, as a guest in a podcast that went up today, actually, uh, former Senator Bill Bradley, who you know, who, who uh, not only was uh, a Rhodes Scholar at Princeton and a United States Senator, but also is in the Basketball Hall of Fame. And I asked him um, about where he learned his greatest leadership lessons. And he said the 10 years that he was playing in the NBA and the camaraderie with teammates and so on. Did you find that? Did you learn from your... I, I am I am no Bill Bradley, not a Rhodes Scholar, not a Hall of Fame athlete. <laughs> um, but but the, the lessons that sports teaches you in general, um, you know, teamwork... Uh, the importance of, of working together, especially, you know, baseball and football, big team sports. Um, that was in- incredibly helpful to me, but also just patience and poise, um, discipline, uh, hard work uh, that you, you gen- generally win the games before you even have them, you know, based on your effort and your work and your preparation. All of those pieces were just so helpful to me, such important life lessons and something that I take over to this job as well. Let, let me talk to you about your family and your family history, uh, fourth-generation Hispanic American. I read a touching story about your grandfather, uh, who was a Korean War veteran yeah. and, uh, and, and lost his sight over time and yet ran the cafeteria in one of the government buildings in San Bernardino County. 
Yeah, it was really just such a formative. I mean, he he was he was the person in 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 my life. My parents were amazing, but I just I hung out with my grandparents a lot. Uh, the lessons that they taught us every weekend. You know, large Latino family. We all lived in the same city, so we all you know. The only question every weekend was, whose house are we going to be at? Is it going to be my uncles, my aunts, my grandparents? Are we hosting? Um, and my grandfather just taught us so many lessons about hard work. And I, as, as a kid, he was blind and he worked. And I didn't think anything of it. But the adversity that he had, uh, Korean War, then he worked for the railroad, and then he lost his eyesight through a disease. Um, and his life could have went in a number of directions. And my, my dad was a teenager at the time when my grandfather completely lost his sight. Um, my grandmother and a friend of his uh, turned him on to a small government program through the Department of Rehabilitation that was, it's a, it's a small program called the Randolph Shepard Act mm -hmm. that still exists to this day to give individuals, legally blind individuals, uh, a preference to be owner operators. On the East Coast, this tends to be like rest stops and things. Um, and on the West Coast, it has kind of tended to be, you know, military commissaries, courthouse cafeterias, which my grandfather ran. It was my first job as a kid, you know, 13 years old, 14 years old, working for him uh, over the summers and the, and the holidays, whenever we didn't have school, bus and tables. It was a single cash register. And people would come up to him and he would say, he would ask people two questions. What do you have and what are you giving me? And, and people say, uh, Manuel, uh, number one, uh, enchiladas, beans and rice, and a Diet Coke, and a, and a 10. And he would make change. And he knew his cash register. He knew his cafeteria. He also knew his, his yard. He mowed his lawn until he was you know, in his 70s, um, you know, edging his lawn by hand, uh, mowing his lawn. Um, I mean, he just, he just had such command of, of, of those two places um, that, that he spent 99% of his time. And, um, but just, it just taught so much to me about community and family that he would put his faith in people um, to tell him the truth and to, and to give him. And some people didn't know, like, what do you, what do you mean? What do you, can't you see? I have a, cause some people didn't know that he was blind because he operated so efficiently. Mm -hmm. um, well, of course I have a diet Coke. You can't see that. Um, yeah. But it, it just, it was so formative, so helpful for me, but it was also that one government program changed yeah. the arc of my family's history. My grandfather got to go back to work. He got to help his family. He got to provide for his family, taught them life lessons, raised five amazing kids, my dad being one of them, um, blue-collar family. Uh, nobody went to college um, right out of high school. Uh, my brother and I were the first to go to, to, go to college uh, in the family. But it just taught us so much about hard work and determination. Yeah, and the, your, your note about the, the, the uh, Randolph Shepard Act, that was... Passed in the New Deal years yeah. by Randolph Jennings from West Virginia yeah. was the sponsor of that uh, legislation. I, and I think it's important to note because there is such jaundice about government today in many quarters. Um, but your story is not, uh, it, it's inspiring, but it's not unique. Uh, and you, in fact, you, you, you were educated with Pell Grants. Yeah. Yeah, I was a Pell Grant kid. Um, a lot of people here on the ASU campus received Pell Grants. Uh, that that program, you know, helped me. But it is these things that you highlight, David, that these, these are real government programs. These are real things that help people succeed and help give people a hand up. 
And it's so important that we just don't lose sight of this kind of big G government when we talk about things because there are so many impactful programs. But I'll tell you, my, my staff and my office probably know more about the Randolph Shepard Act than, than a lot of members is a result of this. We take a lot of pride and ownership behind it. I want to see it succeed. So let me talk to you about your, your folks. Your father worked for a utility company for, I think, 37 years. Or I, I read somewhere that you, uh, you said that they did not want you to learn Spanish. Uh, wh why was that? Yeah, there was so much uh, at the time. At the time, my parents went to high school. There was, you know, so much discrimination. Um, and if you spoke Spanish, you hung out over there. And and so they they raised us to be assimilated. They raised us that we were we were absolutely going to college. They didn't know where. They didn't really know what that meant, by the way, either. Um, but that we were going to college, that we were going to do well, um, but they didn't want us held down by anything. And, you know, they would make a different decision now, probably. Um, but And how are you raising your kid? Well, my, my kids are in Spanish, um, but they... they they're in high school. They're high school boys, David. So this yes. is, you know. So raising is a, a advised term. By, yes, it's yeah. a very loose term. Yes. Um, yes. But we're we're trying. We're trying. Mm -hmm. um, and um, but for them, it was it was it was a difficult you know decision. But they would almost you know keep us away from from Spanish uh, in the house. They would speak Spanish uh, to each other. My grandparents would speak Spanish to them. Um, but they they didn't want the grandkids um, uh, to speak as much Spanish growing up. Let, let me ask you a question because we, we in the in the punditocracy, you know, we talk about the Hispanic vote as if it is a monolithic kind of vote and a monolithic community. That is really far from the reality. Talk talk a little bit about that. It, it truly is, and and we know we know this. We know this in data, um, but we just know this anecdotally, and and. Arizona teaches us a lot of these lessons too. You can't talk to the Latino community in in Phoenix the same way that you talk to the Latino community in the Rio Grande Valley in South Texas or in South Florida or in Southern California even. Um, they are just very different communities, but even then, the difference between first-generation Latinos versus third- and fourth-generation Latinos is, is very different as well. And so from the political punditocracy you know, uh, you know, side, it's just so different. Um, and, and I agree. I mean, we're not a monolith, um, but it is almost you know, it's very regional. And, and I think people who make mistakes, uh, including you know, at times you know, presidential campaigns, try to use one, you know, one brush. Um, with the community when it has to be much more nuanced. It has to be much more specific, um, but it should still be aspirational. Latin, the Latino mm -hmm. dream is the American dream. You know, better quality of life for our kids, better education, clean air, clean water, upward mobility. Um, that's, that's what we all care about. But there is some nuance that just sometimes is lost on people. Well, you say mistakes are made by presidential candidates. One of them has been that immigration, that that the the entire every Latino voter in the country has the same view on immigration and border issues and so on. I mean, we're learning that that is certainly not the case. And and my guess is that a fourth generation Hispanic American might have a different view than than a than a new American. I, I think that's right. But I see this too. 
you know, there's 42 members of the Congressional Hispanic Caucus. Each of us has our own family story and, and history as well. And each of us approaches this issue differently. We all feel passionate about this. And there is some, some differing viewpoints at times, but our, our compassion and our humanity um, is, is really the kind of guiding point when it comes to, to our democratic values. Uh, we debate, we discuss, we disagree. Um, but ultimately, we want a system that works. Um, and, and I think the frustration that people see today at the border, and we should acknowledge that it is, it is a broken system. And it is in part broken because Congress, for over 30 years, has not done anything about it. We have not uh, put a pathway to citizenship for dreamers, which should be the easiest. And issue the, you've been working on. An issue that I feel passionate about and have been working on in a bipartisan way for years. Um, but if we can't do that, which should be the most, the simplest thing that probably 85% of the country agrees in, how, how can we be expected to do big things? Um, and, and so it's a frustration point, but it, it's something that is, you know, so important. And I fundamentally believe that, you know, executive action is just not the solution on this. Congress needs to do the, the hard work and the big Well, things. you raised this because in the last few weeks, President uh, was a party to negotiations between Republicans and Democrats in the Senate and an independent senator from the state of Arizona uh, and uh, agreed to a very, very stringent border security bill to deal with the crisis at the border. Uh, and uh, then Donald Trump got involved and didn't want Republicans agreeing to it because he said he wanted the issue would be a lifeline for Democrats and so on. And so uh, Republicans backed out of the bill. Now, as of today, as we sit here, there's a sense that – have you talked to the president about his plans? I mean, do you know what his plans are? I haven't talked to the president. But he said uh, – but the, apparently his plan is to, through executive action, to uh, use a law that Trump used that the courts threw out to uh, – essentially uh, deprive immigrants who come here illegally uh, of the right to asylum. Uh, what, what is your feeling about it? Well, I don't want to get ahead of, and I don't know what is final from a proposal perspective, and, and you know this from, from your prior uh, job. There's always trial balloons. Are, there's always trial balloons and things yes. that, are, that are floated. Yes. And so um, I want to deal with fact. And the, and the fact is Congress has walked away from our ability to, to do something big. The Senate um, had a bipartisan solution. It was not perfect. I had concerns about aspects of, of the proposal. I'm happy to go chapter and verse with you on, but it was a bipartisan solution that had 60 votes in the Senate, and that is how we pass laws. And so, but Speaker Johnson said, um, pretty early on that he did not want to give any oxygen, you know, to this. He did not want this to succeed. And then President Trump weighed in, and that's it. Donald Trump's grip on the Republican Party um, is so strong, it will prevent anything positive from... Would from you have voted for that bill? I think Democratic leadership would have, would have, would have needed to have a lot of discussions about this. Look, as, as chair of the Democratic Caucus, my job is also to convene everybody and to make sure that everybody is heard, make sure we all have the same information and we're operating on the same wavelength. 
Um, uh, and I would have wanted to do that with this proposal if it if it came from the Senate, as is. I wanted to make sure I would want to make sure everybody uh, had the right information. Um, ultimately, on on balance, I think that it would have been something that I that I would have voted for, um, and I think that it would have had overwhelming support uh, within the House of Representatives. I got to applaud you because you actually answered my question at the end there. I thought you, as you were going through the the wind up to it. Speaking of baseball, I thought, I guess this is how you get to be the head of the Democratic caucus. But. My, my default is to just tell the truth. And, and maybe, maybe That's good. I think that's good. I think that's good. Um, just one last question on this. Why do you think President Biden won 65% of the Hispanic vote, just to violate the same precept that I laid down before, but uh, in 2020, he is running about even now. Uh, why is that? You know, I think, in, and again, I think we have to yes. really break into the numbers yes. and talk about subregions. Right, right. Uh, the South Florida community is is very, very different than the South Arizona community. Yes. Um, so understanding, you know, all of that. But I do think that there is such an important story to tell on behalf of the president here. Creation of 14 million jobs, the investment here in, in Arizona from the Chips and Science Act alone, $2 billion coming to onshore jobs that, that for 30 years have been leaving the country. Um, the record number of, of opportunities for job creation uh, is, is so real and the president has to take um, uh, credit for that. And within the Latino community, this is a lot of workforce jobs. These are jobs that, uh, well, that our kids... Pete, yeah. just, he has been trying to take credit yeah. for it, uh, but people aren't feeling it. Yeah. I mean, and what they feel is their reality. Yeah, no, and and absolutely. And Democrats and, and the president need to, you know, as well, you know, talk about where people feel in their own lives and acknowledge that there are rising costs that people feel. And at times it feels like that that opportunity is slipping away. Um, most specifically, I think, for, for Arizonans and for Southern Californians, the common denominator for a lot of us is on housing and affordable housing and people feeling that their kids aren't going to have an opportunity to live in the communities in which they were raised. And that has to be something that we talk about from a policy perspective. We've had legislative solutions um, within Build Back Better that didn't go anywhere. And, and I'll give credit to Maxine Waters and a lot of House Democrats who worked on these things. Um, but we need to, people need to feel more comfortable in their in their lives before they acknowledge that an elected official, the president, any politician is helping create X amount of jobs. And we need to connect those dots for people, but I, and I just don't know if that's possible without addressing really core issues that people face. Rising healthcare costs, you know, we were able to lower the insulin costs for seniors, but, but only for seniors. There's more work to be done there, but housing specifically is something that we need to focus on and work on. Um, I, I don't want to lose the thread of your story uh, because I read that you became interested in politics, at least notionally, or was exposed to it as a nine-year-old when you embarked on a petition campaign aimed at the ExxonMobil company. So first of all, what kind of nine-year-old were you? I, you know, it's a question my mom asks a, <laughs> a lot. Um, but this is the story she tells of like when she knew I was a little different. 
uh, in, in her words. Um, but it was nine years old and, um, you know, there was only, you know, eight or nine channels on TV. Right. And, and the Exxon Valdez happens 11 million gallons of crude oil, you know, spill into, um, the Alaska waters. And I was, I was just so kind of taken with the images of the wildlife and then the stories of, of this, you know, captain and, and just the raw negligence of this company. And, but I didn't know what to, to do about it. And As so, nine-year-olds and, wouldn't. Yeah. Well, I wrote, a, I wrote a letter. So I wrote a letter to the CEO of, <laughs> of Exxon. And, and then I went to, I told you, full circle, right? My family meets every weekend, generally, or they did as a, as a kid. And my Uncle John um, tells me on, on that weekend, he says, well, you know what you should do? You should do a petition. Um, if you really want people to know what you're doing, you should do a petition. I said, well, I don't know what a petition is. He said, well, you wrote a letter. Now get people to sign on that they agree with your letter, that something needs to be done yeah. and they need to be held accountable. Um, and so I think I rewrote my letter even. Um, and then I had my relatives all sign it. I didn't let any kids sign it. Sounds like you had a big family. That's probably a, Ex exactly. a hunk of signatures yeah, right there. That's yeah. enough to get you on the ballot in some <laughs> And so... Um, none of the kids signed it, only, only aunts, uncles. Um, and then I took it to school and I had teachers sign it. And then I went, um, door to door in my neighborhood and these neighbors had no idea what to do with me, right? But they knew me. I was playing baseball and riding my bike in the street. And they're like, look, you want me to sign something and not, not buy anything? Like I'm in, like, if you're not selling me any cookies or candy <laughs> for, for little league, then I'm in. So I ended up sent, then my uncle said one last thing. He said, um, send it registered mail. So, you know, so you know that they received it. Right. And so it had the little postcard on it that they received it. Somebody signed for it at some point in a, in a, uh, to be put in the PO box or something. I never got a response. Sounds like your uncle could have been a pretty fair organizer. He, 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 you know, he was, um, <laughs> and he, he's, uh, he's a great human being. Um, and, but that was, it was, important and formative for me because, you know, I wanted to take action. I wanted to make the world a better place. I saw something that I didn't like. Uh, I didn't know what to do, but I didn't want to ignore it. We're going to take a short break and we'll be right back with more of the Axe Files. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, CNN's chief medical correspondent. This week on Chasing Life, I sit down with Giles Yeo. It is a problem of our brain influencing the hunger. So hunger is a brain scenario, even though the feeling of hunger comes from your stomach. It's a very new and provocative way of thinking about a condition that impacts more than 40% of Americans. But the thing is, this approach could have big consequences for the way that we treat obesity. Listen to Chasing Life, wherever you get your podcasts. And now, back to the show. So you went to Redlands, uh, the University of Redlands, which is in your, in your area. And I looked up the website of the University of Redlands, and the first thing it said was, become a champion of social action, make a difference in your career and community. You did that when you got there. Yeah, I was really just drawn to that to that mission and that focus. And and the university is one of the the few places. Uh, they also required you to have a community service um, a component 
to, to graduate. And I was just kind of drawn to that and, and, and taken you, by that. You, you started a Habitat, Habitat for Humanity program. I did. My first job was um, I was a Head Start teacher's aide. Um, for my first year, only because, well, I had a big family, I liked kids, but I had a vehicle, and, and a lot <laughs> of kids at school don't have vehicles, so I had a vehicle, and I got to drive um, uh, to Head Start, and I was Mr. Pete, and that is still a nickname that some people who went to college with me still call me Mr. Pete, um, and then my, my sophomore year, I, I worked at um, Habitat for Humanity. There was a campus chapter that existed. We kind of brought it back to life. Uh, we had faculty builds, we had student builds, um, and so organizing, um, you know, students and faculty and friends, you know, on Saturday mornings to to help. Uh, and I was handy. My uncle, my uncle was, you know, uh, worked a lot. You know, roofers and landscapers, and um, come from a, a family that does a lot of work. And so uh, I enjoyed it, and um, was ended up serving on Habitat's board locally, and uh, enjoyed my time there. So you graduated, and you. I guess pretty quickly got appointed deputy director of the Inland Empire Regional Office for the governor of California. How'd you get that gig? I, I interned. The second time I got in an airplane was to intern in Washington, D.C. Um, is a, a summer program through the University of Redlands. And then I came back and I was just kind of bit by the political bug between interning and this was another big piece of, of my life at this point was West Wing the show West Wing. Yes. Um, and you had West Wing parties at your house. We had West Wing parties. Um, people weren't allowed to talk. There was no DVR. We were very, very mean. Uh, <laughs> couldn't, couldn't talk. You had to leave if you wanted to, to talk about something. Um, uh, Bradley Whitford, I have shared yeah. with him that, that this is so important. The star to of the show. The yeah. star of the show was a, was a great guy. And um, so uh, it, it was just, it, this was just a, a, a moment and a time that, um, that I just enjoyed and I got back to Southern California and I wanted to do politics. I didn't know what that meant. My, my parents voted every election, but they didn't know, they didn't know what professions um, were associated with it. And so I uh, worked through a friend, um, Roger Salazar, who's in Sacramento, <laughs> was a University of Redlands alum and a Clinton Gore guy and um, worked on a bunch of uh, races. Uh, he got me hooked up with Governor Gray Davis, and so I interned for Governor Davis my senior year in high school, and then they offered me uh, a gig. Um, so right after, I, I think I graduated on Saturday, and I think I started work on maybe Wednesday uh -huh. um, <clears throat> and worked in the governor's regional office representing the area I now serve in the kind of broader two-county Inland Empire area. Uh, the area that, that I was raised in, we're 65 miles from downtown L.A., um, often in the shadows of, of LA and um, uh, working class communities. And I just, I loved it. I loved representing the governor in that area. I knew it well. Um, but in this role, I had to work with elected Republicans and chambers of commerce and business people. And I think it just taught me so much about the kind of broader layers of the community, um, the, the, the grassroots organizers, the community leaders, the faith leaders. Uh, and so then that just, you know, added to, um, you know, uh, all of uh, everything that I had done and just gave me an ability to kind of speak to the folks. Well, you must have impressed somebody because when you were 26, the city council had a vacancy in Redlands and appointed you to the city council. And then uh, a few years later, they appointed you mayor of Redlands, California. 
Yeah, keeping in mind that each of those, you know, I, to get on the city council, I only needed to count to three votes at the time. There was a, there was a vacancy. So I, I do much better at counting votes when it's in smaller numbers, David. So um, I filled a vacancy at the time, four members of the city council. Um, I think it was 14 of us who applied. I was by far the, the, the youngest and um, uh, applying, former city commissioners and things, you know, applied. And I just kind of shared my story and all of the members of the council knew me. Um, and I was, I was very mindful that I didn't have to be everybody's first choice, but if I was everybody's second choice, uh, that might also work. And uh, so the importance of counting votes. Yeah, man, was, that's a pretty sophisticated for it, a young guy. It was, it was a decent operation. It, we ran. I thought maybe they had seen your Exxon Valdez letter and, you know, I don't know if that would have played well in Redlands, to be honest with you. <laughs> That's true. Um, That's but, true. Um, and uh, tell just one question about just being mayor of a city. That experience, you know, I'm a big fan of, I, I used to do mayoral races all over the country, and um, I covered City Hall in Chicago, and I always felt that local government was actually the most vibrant uh, level of government because you live with people and you're living their problems and you see what you can do uh and you do it um tell me about what you learned from being mayor that was useful later i i love that job i mean and i have just such respect for for uh, all of our local officials at every level i mean you have to navigate these issues in a nonpartisan way and and what you have to do is you just have to focus on what's the solution like how do we how do we how do we solve these issues and um, that's what I loved about it is being part of a group of, of five individuals who genuinely were focused on it. We all had, we knew generally how we were voting for president, you know, between the five of us. Um, uh, and that's fine. We set that aside and it was like, how do we, how do we reinvest in infrastructure? You know, how do we create a better park system and you know, how do we plan for the future? We were one of the first cities to have a climate action plan just because it was the right thing to do. I mean, just those, you know, little things that are so impactful, but you also have to know as mayor, you have to know everything that is going on within the four walls of that, of that city um, because people are holding you accountable for it. And um, you know, they're holding you accountable on a daily basis. If you're going to shopping, you're going to the supermarket, you're walking around town, you know, people know you, um, and they expect answers. And, and I've tried to carry that over too. And I tell our team and, and, and my staff, like when people come to us with an issue, it's not our responsibility to say, Oh, well, that's a state issue. Or you should, you should really talk to your local city council member. Like, no, they expect us to try to help them and to navigate the system and uh, and to provide resolution no matter what the issue is. We are we are capital G government to a lot of people and um, we have to we have to act. We have to help. You ran for Congress in 2012. The district had been changed in uh, after reapportionment. It was thought to be a democratic leaning district. Uh, but you have this jungle primary in uh, California where the first two candidates win, whether they're Republicans or Democrats, everybody runs together. <laughs> I guess this is a, an, opportune to ask, an opportune time to ask you about how you feel about that system, but uh, we'll talk about that in a second, but you lost. So here you were, you had this meteoric political rise, and every, I think there was an expectation that you would be 
that you would win or at least be competitive in that race. You didn't make the the the, the cut. Yeah. How did you process that? Was that was it devastating? Was it? It was. It was hard. Look, I mean, we've talked about sports being formative. I don't like losing at anything. I don't like losing playing pickleball. I don't like losing um, uh, playing board games with the kids. Um, I don't like losing at all. And and to lose at this level and what was what was seen is in such a uh, a public way um, really you know did stick with me and and it and it hurt. Um, and but the opportunity to to serve the opportunity to do well by my community i still knew fundamentally that you know we needed a democratic voice at the table representing this region um that this was a democratic seat and it should be um and that there were things that needed to be done and so i i, I didn't just jump in right away I, I took some time to reflect um to talk to the family i'm, I'm not sure um uh, if alicia's secret ballot you know, still holds your wife on, yeah. on what my wife uh, wanted. Um, but, you know, we're, we're committed. We're committed as a family to, to help make the region um, mm -hmm. and, the, and the country a better place. And it's something we feel passionate about and we talk to our kids about. Um, so it was a very public way to, to fail, um, but it, it taught me a lot. Um, but from a raw political perspective that, that you can appreciate, I mean, after the maps were redrawn, we weren't given a ton of time. I ran a 19-week campaign, and you just you just can't do that. Um, and so, having an opportunity to run a 19-month campaign, you know, after that um, was uh, was was much easier um, and and something that we were able to do. Uh, the same result almost happened again, actually, but it's just a raw math issue when it comes to this jungle primary. If you are in a low turnout district. Um, and four Democrats are splitting the vote, and two Republicans are there. Like, this, this is just math. It is not politics. It is not uh, fancy. It is, it is just math. And making sure that that doesn't happen in some of these districts is, is something that I take personal. Yeah. It's math, but it's better be on the side of addition than subtraction, I think. Yeah, you always want to build coalitions. Yeah. And uh, so you went to Congress, but you made a quick ascent there, as well. In the last Congress, uh, you also served on the January 6th committee. Um, tell me about that experience and tell me about what you anticipated and what it, what you learned. Oh man. Um, how much time do we have? Uh, it was, it was such an, such an important experience. And I think the the best way to summarize it was just the, the volume of work that we had to accomplish. Um, and I'll tell a story about getting on the, the committee too here in a minute. But, um, you know, my wife had told me, you know, this could be the most important thing that you ever do. And so just make sure that you do it right. I'm sure your kids felt good about that. Yeah, I mean, they, they, <laughs> you know, when 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 I'm on family vacations, locked away in depositions, um, you know, on Zoom, uh, participating in depositions, they said, "Hey, we were the most important." Yeah, yeah. <laughs> this this you know, in in public life, um, this could be you know something that that is the most important. And so we, I just wanted to do it right. I just, I just wanted, and just that this drive to just make sure. Um, and one thing that I tried to do, I know you had Stephanie Murphy, my, my former colleague, yes. 
Um, it was on, on that committee. On, on, on the committee. Um, you know, and, and I remember sitting at, I remember the call Nancy Pelosi gave me. And, and this was something that, and Stephanie wanted to be on the committee. She wanted to be on the January 6th. Stephanie, we should point out, for those who didn't hear the podcast, is a, was a Vietnamese refugee uh, who uh, ultimately was elected to Congress, extraordinarily bright, uh, but very passionate about democracy for reasons that you can understand. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so, but I was, I was vice chair of the, of the Democratic caucus. I was helping out. I was new to this leadership role. Um, and uh, that was taking a lot of, a lot of time. And um, Speaker Pelosi called and said, um, you know, we created this commission. And, and by the way, stepping back, Stephanie wanted, I wanted, all, all of us, we wanted a bipartisan 9-11 style commission, right? And Mitch McConnell um, walked into the Senate and said, you know, do me a favor and vote against this bipartisan, this, this bipartisan uh, plan to investigate January 6th. And so at that point, Speaker Pelosi felt we can't ignore this. We have to do something, even if it's just us. And that's the point at which people started advocating um, uh, and raising their hands and saying that they would want to serve. Uh, I did not do that. And um, so Speaker Pelosi called me and said, we created this committee. Um, I've, I've heard from a lot of your colleagues who, who want to serve. I said, that's great. Democratic caucus is full of amazing people and we will find great folks to serve on this committee. And she says, why haven't I heard from you? And I said, well, speaker, she has the gift of directness, doesn't she? <laughs> I think you know that as well. Yes. yes. Um, and, and I said, well, I don't know. I don't, I just due to this leadership role. I don't know if I want that. And I don't know if I want to deal with the death threats and, you know, with the young family. Yeah. And which is a sad commentary. It, it is. And so she paused and she said, okay, but you'll do it. Right. And I said, yeah, yes, Madam Speaker, I'll, I'll do it. And she said, this was, this was at 1030 at night. And she said, okay, um, be in my office at nine o'clock tomorrow. Uh, we have a 10 a.m. Uh, press conference where I'm announcing that you're on the committee. And, and she said, and you can't tell anyone. I said, can I tell my wife? Can I tell Alicia? And she paused and she says, yeah, you can tell Alicia. <laughs> I said, I feel this kind of impacts her. <laughs> you know, um, uh, Steve Israel, uh, who served in Congress for 16 years, said of Pelosi, when you, when you go to Nancy's office, there are two things you notice. There's always chocolates on the table and a baseball bat in the corner. <laughs> And she's perfectly willing to use either. It's true. She will use whatever she needs to. Um, yeah. the, the, the importance of, the, of the, the committee, though, in investigating and finding out what happened on January 6th, um, not just to protect democracy, but to tell the full and complete story. And I thought that Chairman Benny Thompson and, and, and Vice Chair Liz Cheney, we spent so much time together. But as we told that story, one of the, the things... I suggested at the, at the beginning was 30% of the country is going to love what we do, no matter, no matter what it comes out as. And 30% of the country isn't going to believe it. And it's, it's how we speak to that 40% during these hearings that is going to matter because some people are only going to watch five minutes and some people are going to watch one hearing, but they're not going to watch any others. 
And, and so, you know, I thought that we, I thought that the committee just did such a good job in conveying the information that we received from the depositions in such a digestible way um, that it, it was a, a tribute to the professionalism of the committee staff. Could you have done it if it was a bipartisan? A tri- I mean, obviously you had two Republicans on there, but they were Republicans who were willing to do it for, because they shared your view of fact finding here. But if it had been, a bipartisan committee, would it have been as uh, effective? If it would have been a bipartisan committee, yeah. Yeah, no, I think I think the bipartisan side of it gave us... Gave us I, no, no, I understand. But I'm saying had McCarthy named oh. members to the committee, because wouldn't their role have been to contest it, it would have taken on a different a different feel and so it was kind time. of a unique thing. It, was, it was unique it was uh, there aren't and, and you've been around these congressional hearings david usually right every member gets five minutes to 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 ask their questions right and some people make it um you know newsworthy and you know whether that's you know with whiteboards or with yes. speeches right they 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 find a way to communicate in a crisp and effective way in five minutes and that is a skill um, but what we stepped back and said is a committee, what's most effective? Is that structure work? And do we have to do that structure? And what we decided was, look, we, we can do it any way we want. And so you know, Benny Thompson basically assigned each member a hearing. And that was your hearing. You were responsible for the content of that hearing, the flow of that hearing, the questions of that hearing, um, and and the witnesses and and so we had these themes and my hearing was fake elector. Well, yeah, well, the fake electors was was um, was one of the the themes uh, that was so impactful. The, the Georgia pressure campaigns, all of these pieces. I thought that was yours. What was mine? Yours? Was Pence? Mine was Mike, oh Pence. Yes, mine was Mike Pence, and and that's when we ran the footage and. Um, a, a, a staffer on the committee who works for me now, you know, found out uh, the mob was 40 feet from Mike Pence. And, you know, we didn't to that time at that time, we didn't know that until we looked at the video, until we talked to them and the testimony and, and, and Mike Pence's team. Um, and uh, just just how clearly and crisply we, we, we talked about that and we put that in terms that people could understand and how Mike Pence started his day, you know, leading a prayer circle with his senior staff and he ended his day getting, you know, the, the Bible verse, you know, from his team that, you know, you run the race and you served and, and just everything that, that mm. in between that, um, was his day of yeah. pressure and that the former president put on him uh, to shame him to try to violate the constitution was just so striking we're going to take a short break and we'll be right back with more of the axe files and now back to the show So do you think that there would have been indictments if you hadn't if you hadn't laid out the investigation the way you did? I wish the indictments would have come sooner, you know, either way. I think we and I think the I think the Department of Justice would would even agree that they have looked at at our depositions, they they read the material uh, that we made public. Uh, that that was something that was helpful for the, them. The case they laid out is very much along the tracks of what you guys 
did, um, but you say you wish they had done it sooner. Do you think that this case will, the January 6th case that sits in Washington right now, will actually be tried before the election? You know that's a that's a question. How, I guess how important is it is another question. It it it's it's important. the 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 focus of the January sixth committee was that we get to the truth and that people are held accountable, and at every level, um, we wanted accountability. And through our work, we found that the president was ultimately, you know, responsible and a key player in this pressure campaign, um, and deserves a measure of accountability. Uh, that's what I'm. That's what I'm focused on. That's what I want. Uh, the Justice Department, the justice system, will work if if he is held accountable. Um, timelines and uh, does it does it does it trouble you that he has gotten politically stronger as these indictments have come down? It, it does. It, it troubles me as an as an American, not just as a as a Democrat, I mean, as a, as a politician, I mean, this troubles me as an American that he can say something, whether that's level a threat to somebody or tell people to take a different position, i.e. immigration that we talked about and, and that people will follow him and people will do what he says. But that is also the story of January 6th. He told people come to Washington um, and, and we will fix this. That is that is what he and we we interviewed and deposed, you know, dozens and dozens of people who were just kind of caught up in it. But they firmly believed that they were doing what the president. Well, if you believe that the election was stolen, then you can see how you would believe that it was your patriotic duty to try and stop that uh, election from being certified. To so try- the original lie about the election was um, really the thing upon which everything else follow. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and it just, it come it came down to the big lie. And, and what we proved time and time again is, you know, the president even knew that he had not won the election. He had, he had told people that, um, but it was this act um, that he was portraying and going out in public and whipping up the crowd and telling people to come on January 6th, it'll be wild. Mm-hmm. You know, all of those things just kind of fed into it. Uh, and then it's, it shouldn't be lost on any of us. The Republican Party made hundreds of millions of dollars after the election um, in November and December under the auspices of recounts and, mm-hmm. and, and helping us prove that we won. They raised, you know, $200 million, you know, in a short period of time and, you know, all because it whipped up their crowd and, yeah. and those folks are still active. They're still engaged. And, and it's, it's a, it's a problem. You know, I, I, I wept when I saw the scenes at the Capitol because it was such a defiling of everything that makes us strong, in, including the rule of law. Uh, and it was heartbreaking to me. Yeah, I was worried about my friends in Congress, but I was even more worried about this democracy of ours, which we treat as a gift, but really as a project and requires us each generation to renew our commitment to it. Uh, so uh, I never thought I'd see a moment like that. And uh, I'm sure you never thought you'd see a moment like that. I didn't. And, and, and my experience, um, I was on the House chamber 
uh, it was because of COVID rules, it was a limited number. We were not supposed to have uh, more than, uh, I, I think, 40, 60 people, you know, on the on the House floor. Republicans didn't observe that, um, by the way. And so they had more people on the floor than we did. We were spaced out. Um, and Colin Allred was near me. Um, and Sean Patrick Maloney was, was behind him. I was... Uh, behind Jamie Raskin right on the aisle like when they introduced the president for the state of the union like that aisle I was like right right there third row and um you know the interesting thing in the lead up to this Zoe Lofgren had asked the question in her role as house administration that oversees the Capitol police and I remember specifically being on a conference call where she she had asked the police chief you know We've heard these things. What's what do you say? And their comment was every eventuality had been thought through, and it made me it made me feel comfortable because look, I believe law enforcement. If they tell you that you're going to be safe and and that things have been thought through, then I, I default to that. And so we get there. <laughs> you see, you should, you should have gone to law school because then you question everything. Every eventuality has been gone through. They didn't say every eventuality has been gone through, and we're prepared for we're prepared, it. Yeah. And and so um, I'm on the I'm on the House floor, and all we have really is Twitter. But even not every member is kind of scrolling through this. We didn't know, to be honest with you, eighty percent, a large percentage of people on the House floor had no idea what was going on outside because we got to work early. We showed up. It's this exercise. We knew there were going to be some challenges. Um, we knew Republicans were going to challenge the count. We're prepared. We're figuring out who's going to speak and all of those pieces. But we got there at, you know, 11 o'clock on the house floor. And, and this is hours later that the mob had, had come. And um, I remember, you know, kind of texting friends and people testing, texting, are you okay? And I said, no, oh, this is the, and, and I thought everything's fine. And then it was, I remember showing Colin Allred the, the tweet that said protesters are in the building. And I, I, in my mind, I felt that this was like someone running onto a baseball field. Someone's going to break in. They're going to get tackled by 12 people and then it's over. And we just didn't know until we started hearing sounds in the hallway and until the sergeant at arms came over and said, you know, we're suspending these operations. Uh, then the uh, chaplain came and did a prayer and I'm like, where am I, where am I at? And what is going on here? And then I, I keep a little red book with me at times and scribble some notes and I didn't write much. I wish I wrote more that day, but, but it, at the time I wrote at 2:37 PM, I wrote, I'm a little scared. And, you know, to me, that was just like, I didn't know, I didn't know what was going to happen. And then you hear banging on the door. Um, and then at that point we were escorted out. Um, and I didn't have the toughest day. The people who had the toughest time aside from our brave law enforcement officials were the members in the gallery. So that gallery group, because of COVID restrictions, as I told you, people, members were told if you want to watch, and you're not invited to be on the floor, go to the gallery. And at one point, Mitt Romney was up in the gallery and, you know, the joint proceeding. Um, but the members, it was all Democratic members who stuck in, in there um, and they got trapped, basically. They spent eight minutes, they got evacuated eight minutes later than we did. It was a long eight minutes.
That's when Ashley Babbitt was shot. That's when, you know, protesters were running around. I mean, it was, it was, it was real. And a lot of those members have talked about that experience and, and, and sought um, help. Uh, and they are brave for making that piece public. Um, but it was a, it was a tough. Did you hear from your wife during this period? I did. I did. And she tried not to, she was watching it on TV and she was trying not to alarm me. Um, East coast, West coast. So it's still a little earlier. Um, but she woke up the kids and, and the teenage boys again, I'm sorry. You know, they're sleeping in at 10, 10 AM. Um, and she, she woke them up and said, like, something's happening at the Capitol. Um, you need to know about this. Like we're, I'm texting your dad. We're okay. Um, and then it was later in the afternoon. Another member had said, like, I don't, I don't know if we're all safe. And, um, People, members with good relationships back home with their law enforcement um, texted. I texted my police chief and said, can you, you know, give me a little bit of help? And so they put a cop car at my, at my door, you know, at my, in my home um, just to make sure um, because we didn't know what was happening. We didn't know, do, are these, is this a coordinated attempt? Is this not? Um, and, and at that point, the leadership had been, whisked away um, and basically our conference and caucus was being led we were in one big room in the Longworth building and it was Hakeem Jeffries and Liz Cheney who were the chairs of their conferences the highest ranking members this is a distinction Hakeem talks about he was the highest ranking member without a detail because once you have the detail they take you to safety uh, they have to um, but uh, that was that was our experience and story you have that job now <laughs> I have that job yeah, now yeah. Yeah, you talk about the the, the Trump's sort of uh, ability to uh, to to brand and sell his story. Uh, he's now very much in control of events in Washington. Uh, over the past few weeks, not only has the immigration bill been stalled, but you, you uh, have not been able to pass aid for Ukraine. Ukraine just had to retreat for lack of ammunition. The uh, aid to Israel has been stalled as well. When you get back on Monday, or I guess Monday, Wednesday, Wednesday, yeah, yeah, it's not like there's anything urgent. If when you get when you get back there, do you expect that there will be action on these fronts? The American people deserve us to take action. Right. In, That's in, a different question. It's a different question, but the, the, it's important to note the House of Representatives functions in a majority-run institution. If the speaker does not want something to happen, if a majority of members do not want an outcome, they can generally, generally stop it from happening. Now, what we need, um, government funding, is is another big issue coming yeah. forward. And But this national security supplemental, Ukraine aid, Israel aid, humanitarian assistance to Gaza, Indo-Pacific priorities, you know, this is, these are, the national security imperatives are so important and so impactful. What we need are our reasonable colleagues to step up um, and either push the speaker to put this on the floor for an up or down vote or join with us um, to try to figure out. There are procedural things you could do procedural to force and, it out. Procedural and, and mechanisms in which we can force a vote. Either way, to my, back to my original point, the American people deserve us to vote on this up or down. And I'm confident that there are 300 votes in the House of Representatives to pass this national security aid package. 
the Ukrainian people have a stake in this as well. Absolutely. And, you know, what, what sometimes isn't connected to why the Republican Party, why House Republicans and Donald Trump are so soft on Putin, I just don't understand. But it is true. And, and where this is impactful and meaningful for, for us here back home is, you know, if Putin's march continues and we're, we're dragged into this um, in Poland, through NATO, you know, it's going to be Americans who are boots on the ground and serving. And that is, that is one thing that every policymaker at every level it is the most difficult decision to ever make, and we want to prevent that from happening. And supporting Ukraine in mm-hmm. the fight for democracy here helps ensure that that doesn't happen. So we talked about Pelosi earlier. She was at the peak of her power, and she left the leadership. Uh, and she persuaded uh, Stenio Hoyer and Jim Clyburn, the number two and number three members of the House, to go with her, all of them in their 80s, because she felt that there should be a torch passing, a generational change, and you are all younger. You're 44 years old, I think. Hakeem Jeffrey, barely 50. Yeah. Um, how old is Catherine Clark? I mean, she's in the... So you, you got the generational uh, change. Has that been invigorating, do you think, for the caucus? It... it the, all I can tell you is the Democratic caucus has just been so amazing throughout all of this. But to to learn from Hakeem Jeffries and Catherine Clark and I all learned from Nancy Pelosi and Steny Hoyer. We sat at the leadership table, the broader leadership table with that group. We learned from them. We we hold them up. They are they are the Mount Rushmore of Democratic politicians um, to come out of the House. So and uh, the the Democratic Caucus has just treated us so well and been so open uh, to that, and and all guided by the focus too. And and I think to a person, the Democratic Caucus will tell you um, our mission, our job, our focus is to make sure a Democrat holds the White House but to also make sure that Hakeem Jeffries becomes Speaker of the House next year. I presume it is. The social media model is predicated on playing to our sense of grievance, uh, of difference, of anger, of outrage, and uh, drives us into silos in which the information we get is often uh, filtered information that affirms our point of view, and everybody outside the silo is treated as, a, a, you know, as an enemy. And uh, that, that has seized our politics in a way that I think is really unhealthy, and it's something that, that we have to defeat. Is the House of Representatives governable uh, right now? And how much has this kind of social media ethos of, you know, you're on the blue team, the red team, so on, seized control to make cooperation much more difficult? Well, I, I think it's it's a great question, and and I I don't know if I can answer this with that like Walter Cronkite, you know, you know, eighty two font, you know, right above me, without also mentioning that there there aren't people like Mr. Cronkite, there aren't folks outside of, of course, David Axelrod on CNN. Thank you. Uh, who who are those individuals who are looked at and and revered and and respected? on both sides of the aisle where the American public says, I believe that person. 
And so that's why I would tell you the work that you're doing here, the work the journalism school is doing here to, to kind of give you that, that grounding um, and, and focus to be truth tellers um, and to do it in a fair and honest way um, is so, so important and so impactful. We need those people um, in order for our system to work. Um, uh, we have to have uh, those storytellers and truth tellers, you know, on TV. But to David's question, it is it is hard. Um, it is hard in the social media world. It is hard when there are some people in politics who would rather be Twitter famous than than to pass laws um, and actually help people. Um, and I don't know how you fix that. And so I think my focus has been not on fixing that necessarily. I don't know if there's a fix for that, but we can marginalize that behavior by, by passing laws and by working in a collaborative way. And so that's why I have tried to be the, the, the person who Republicans feel comfortable reaching out to. Um, and I think I've got a track record to prove that uh, where we can work on things uh, where we can disagree on topics, a, B and C, but you know what on D and E, you know, I'm working with you and, and we're in this together and I trust you and you'll be honest with me and I'll be honest with you and we can try to find a solution. That doesn't mean that we're going to agree on all that other stuff, um, but it means that we can at least be collegial and, and we can work on what's in front of us. And, and, and the Congress of the United States needs to do more of that. Um, and there are serious legislators on the other side who do want to do that. But I will tell you, the number is diminishing. Yeah. Well, you see a whole bunch of them leaving Congress. Yeah. Some of your most uh, productive and because Congress is a place where you want to do big things, whether you're red team or blue team, you want to, you want to help, you want to do things. And, and oftentimes my critique, one of my critiques of Republicans is they are not trying to find a way to get to yes. They're just trying to find a way to, 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 to mess things up, to slow things down um, without actually saying no. I want to thank you, Pete Aguilar, uh, not just for being here, but for your service and uh, for your inspiration. Thank you. Thank you, David. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, brought to you by the Institute of Politics at the University of Chicago and CNN Audio. The executive producer of the show is Miriam Fender Annenberg. The show is also produced by Saralina Berry, Jeff Fox, and Hannah Grace McDonald. And special thanks to our partners at CNN, including Steve Lichtai and Haley Thomas. For more programming from the IOP, visit politics.uchicago.edu.